what I'm seeing in 2022 at this stage of the game, it's a, I'm looking at it at most of my races in four segments and it's basically education and gender. So you've got less than college educated men, less than college educated women, college educated men, college educated women, college educated women are kind of lost for Republicans. Um, it's, you know, 60, 30 with 10% undecided with less than college educated men. It's the inverse. 60, 30, 10% undecided in Republicans' favor. The battle lines are generally between college-educated men and less than college-educated women. And I think that's where you're really seeing the tension between abortion and cost of living. Welcome to Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and this show is here to support your interest in center-right politics, policy, and breaking news. Listen in and discover how to awaken your inner ideal candidate, and if you're ready, how you can jump in and change the world as a runner or a supporter. Welcome to Political Contessa. If you or a friend have ever considered running or you know a woman who should, I've got something just for you. My quick guide called Secrets from the Campaign Trail. It will show you five signs to tell you you're ready to enter the political arena. To get these tips and learn about all new podcast episodes and ways to get involved, head over to politicalcontessa.com. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Political Contessa. I'm Jennifer Nassor, and I'm your Political Contessa. With me today, I have Amanda Iavino. Amanda is a principal at WPA intelligence, working with federal and state campaigns, as well as national organizations and independent expenditure efforts. She most recently served as the polling director and led the data efforts for Governor Glenn Youngkin's winning 2021 Virginia gubernatorial campaign. Amanda is also the executive director of the Virginia Conservative Women's Coalition and has significant experience working with women candidates up and down the ballot and totally understands all of the challenges we women face during a campaign. Amanda, thank you so much for being here today with me on Political Contessa. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I don't know where to start because obviously you and I are in the same space and we work with the same organization, Women's Public Leadership Network. But I think the thing that I am so focused on right now, especially um, being a mom, is Virginia and the messaging and all of that. But I want to I want to go back because for my listener, you know, you and I have been doing this for a long time. And so it is, you know, I, I always feel like I come in at a 30,000 foot view of everything, but everyone has to start from someplace. And so, you know, for the person who is just so frustrated by the news of the day, whether that's the economy, whether that's the lack of democracy, whether that's the polarization, the messaging in schools, the, you know, BS that you hear on the news, like walk us through how you decided to get into, especially this arena of data. How did you begin all this? Um, I think I've always wanted to be in politics in some way, shape or form. My dad first ran for school board when I was in second grade and I helped with his campaign as much as I could. (laughs) Um, And I had been involved in actually, uh, we're both from Nassau County, New York and the 
the fun that is down on Long Island in the Republican Party. So I kind of grew up around politics and getting involved. And then I went down to Vanderbilt for college and was deciding I double majored in poli sci and then economics. So it was a little bit more mathy uh, than a lot of my other poli sci majors and political friends. And when I graduated, the world had collapsed. It was 2008. So I was deciding between you know, Wall Street and politics and the world made my mind up for me. <laughs> and I got into polling because I was always, I still had that math kind of bug in the back of my head. And polling has really evolved to also include data and predictive analytics. So after a long and winding road that included opposition research and campaign finance work and polling and then more polling and, and back and forth, I wound up here in 2019 and haven't looked back. That is so cool. It, it's just a very different, I mean, I have two degrees in political science and, you know, it could take you in any which way. I mean, I ended up going to law school. I think the combination of the math and the poli sci is so phenomenal and it kind of gives you a different view on things. And the polling is so important. I mean, I, you know, the internal polling, I think it, you know, is different than the trying to message something, right? But you can see the trends, seeing where people are, seeing policy arguments. What are you seeing? So now you're here and you worked on the Yunkin campaign. Let's start from 2021. So 2020, we were all stuck at home, you know, all of us parents, moms and dads watching their kids on Zoom helping them with their homework. We had nothing else to do. We were all stuck in the house. And now you start having more conversations with your kids about what they're doing all day mm -hmm. and what they're learning and you hear. And then 2021, they go back to school and there's kind of a little bit of a exposure of where education is going and what school districts decided that they wanted to teach kids. So Glenn Youngkin comes out and... Where do you see the data going? How did you how did you figure out that this was the messaging? So we had actually done our first poll for the governor in December of 2020, just as kind of the vaccines were rolling out. And what we did was we asked a, a question. Usually when you poll, you say, OK, here are 10 issues. Which one is your top issue? And instead of we did we did that, but instead of just leaning on that, we also asked, hey, what's the top issue that you and your family are focused on? Just open end, let people tell us what's kind of on their minds. And in that, the when we looked at the word cloud, the biggest word, word cloud was pandemic. It was still vaccines. And again, December 2020, just as those were starting to roll out, that was still top of mind. And then you kind of push past all of that and we're digging through. And right about at the same size of, as taxes and that word cloud was education. And that's when we kind of saw, hey, there might be something here. Let's, you know, keep this thread, you know, in our hands so we can keep pulling it slowly uh, throughout the year. And what we saw, the education message wasn't just one message. The national media likes to say that all the governor talked about was CRT, and that couldn't be farther from the truth. We talked a lot about CRT in the primary or the nominating contest. Virginia has an interesting dynamic where every year they choose whether they're going to nominate their candidates from a convention or a primary. And they're supposed to decide in November before the election 
Um, they wound up not deciding finally until March. So we had to be pretty nimble with how, who we were talking to and how that's a story for another day. That was a major headache. But in that nominating contest, we talked about CRT, we talked about masks, we talked about making sure schools stay open. And then when we got to the general, it was still curriculum, right? A little bit broader than just CRT. That was generally talking to Republicans, but independents and the swing voters that we needed weren't talking about curriculum in the same way. They were talking about it more in terms of transparency. Because like you said, I think parents finally got to see what their kids were teaching or what their kids were learning in schools during the pandemic. And it's like, wait, 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 this isn't what I thought you guys were doing. So we had a curriculum path. We did talk to folks about CRT and then general. There were also a lot of school safety concerns coming up in Virginia. Um, school resource officers was a concern. And then there were a bunch of really unfortunate incidents in Loudoun um, County, which is Northern Virginia, where uh, girls got assaulted. Um, and they actually moved the child that committed those assaults to a different school and didn't tell parents. Um, so it was a lot of seeing what was going on in school bureaucracy, and that was school board as much as it was teachers union. So making sure that, you know, school bureaucracy was kind of the, the target for a lot of anger and speaking to that. Then we had a bunch of other issues, <laughs> including when Terry McAuliffe was governor the first time, he lowered uh, school standards so that failing schools could reach the standards instead of helping those failing schools. So we spoke to that. There, there were a lot of different threads that we kind of, we pulled out. They, they were also trying to get rid of accelerated math at a certain point. So it, it, there were a lot of different education angles and what you know worked out in our favor. We were kind of running with them all summer, all spring, all summer. And then we get into the debate and Terry McAuliffe said his wonderful line of the parents should be involved in schools. And it just tied up all of those strings in a nice bow that we could just hammer him home with. Oh my God. I have three daughters. And if there was a kid who was moved from one school district to another who had assaulted another girl, I think I would lose my mind. Um, that's, that is a big, that's a big thing. That's so what actually happened was the first girl's father went to a school board meeting and was getting very angry about it because he wasn't getting answers. And when the media covered it, it was look at these essentially deranged Trump supporters getting angry about masks. And that's what he was angry about was his daughter, oh not the, the mask. So there was a lot going on and it, they're still kind of working through a lot of the after effects, but now they have a governor and an administration that's kind of on their side rather than on the side of the bureaucrats. Right. That's amazing. I mean, that's because that's not how it was portrayed in, no. in the mainstream media. I mean, you know, it is like, you know, and I think everyone that was, that was basically the message was parents are pissed off about the masks and about their kids being separated. Okay. So great messaging. Um, but also on top of it, a very good messenger. Yes. So, I mean, that's, you know, one thing, one of my complaints today with definitely the Republican party, but, you know, Democratic party has the same issue is that our messengers suck. (laughs) I mean, there's like our message sucks and our messengers suck. And I think, you know, things can be, I think both sides, you know, and Yunkin did a great job with keeping, I mean, it just seemed like he always kept his cool. I'm a big fan. If you can't tell, I'm a big fan of this, but he, 
he always seemed to keep his cool. He always kind of felt like he had a steady hand that you felt comfortable with him, regardless of where you felt his politics were. You know, I like that he did not invoke Trump all the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you see a lot of candidates today coming before the midterms that won in their primaries. And your process also is fascinating that it doesn't go before a primary and goes before a nominee. That's like a thing for another day because that's so, so in the weeds. But I mean, holy cow, that's 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 unbelievable. And so I think, you know, where you see so many people just talking about Trump instead of talking about the issues I have a problem with people who are just terrible messengers, right? They need a good, solid policy message to communicate, to say to the voters, here's what I want to do. Here's the problem. And here's how I'm going to fix it. And this problem was, you know, started by the folks that are in office and considering where both houses are and the White House are controlled by Democrats, I just feel like that is the Republicans have a great message and that doesn't have to be about Trump. And so and Youngkin did a great job of that. But again, I feel like he didn't come off as a hothead. He didn't come off as a rebel rouser. He didn't come off as someone who just was looking for the tweets and and the Twitter clicks. Right. He he came across as someone who said, I want to be a manager. I need to fix the situation and hire me for this job to help us move ahead. And that is really amazing, I think, today to see in someone who who actually also was successful. Yeah, I think the two things that I admire the most about the governor are one, his sense of empathy. And I think that gets to what you're saying about the messengers. I think we have a lot of candidates who saw Trump's success and who are kind of replicating his style. And no one can really replicate his style. Yeah, I, we grew up in New York. This is this has been Trump right. since, since Ever, forever. forever. Yes, um, yes. We can't. You know, he's never actually. What people in 2016 liked about Trump was actually the same thing that they liked about Bernie, where when they got up to the podium, they you know what you're going to get exactly, and you can't replicate. And Bernie's Bernie's a perfect example, and and I used him all through 2016 too because, as much as I said I don't like any of his policies, I don't agree with him on anything, but. I have to say, like the guy is up standing on a flatbed truck at four o'clock in the morning with a rally. And and if that rallies 10 people, it doesn't matter. He didn't care. He just wanted to get his message out. And and that's admirable for politicians. And yes, like Trump is Trump. He's been the same guy forever. You cannot be in a different state in a different part of the country and think you're going to come across with that, you know, and sorry, the rest of the country. But like, you know, being from New York, there's a different sort of attitude and tone and whatever. And he was able to carry it. That's, that's one of the issues that I see today. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) No, I mean, it's like someone coming into Boston and trying to pretend that they're a lifelong Boston. Totally. You you can't do it. Yeah. You can't get Marty Walsh's accent. Marty's got the best accent and labor secretary. He's got the most awesome Boston (laughs) accent. And and I could not ever replicate that. (laughs) Right. But the, the, I think the criticism of Trump is that sometimes he could not express any empathy or a very limited sense of. And that's something that especially women voters felt very keenly. And I think for for the governor, Governor Youngkin, it's very grounded in his faith that he has a very strong sense of empathy and it comes through with everything he does. 
Um, so that helped him connect to a lot more women than had been associating with the Republican Party, a lot more minority voters. Um, we won Hispanic voters and we got over a quarter of African-American votes. Now, some of that was turnout related, but he connected with segments that the Republican Party doesn't typically connect with. The other thing that he has that I really admire and try to replicate as much as I can is a relentless sense of optimism. It's the old Reagan style, hey, this is going to work out, like happy warrior mentality. Uh, but it's also very different than Trump. So what actually wound up working in our favor was part of Terry McAuliffe's ad campaign was calling Glenn Trump a little Trumpkin. And that was about half of the ads and the other half were about abortion. But what we were seeing is we didn't have to talk about Trump because Terry was talking about him for us. So with the folks that wanted to hear about Trump, Terry's ads were actually helping us. Mm. And with the people that weren't very big fans of Trump, because Trump lost the state by 10, those two factors, the empathy and the optimism were it didn't matter what he was talking about, whether the issue was what the, what these voters cared about, those tonal and rhetorical differences were enough for those independent women to say, yeah, he doesn't sound like Trump to me, so I'm going to give him more of a shot. So if that Terry McAuliffe strategy kind of backfired on him because it wound up helping us, especially in kind of the rural parts of the state. Definitely. That's well, yeah. I mean, and, and you see Democrats are imploring that's that strategy and had been in the primaries this year where, you know, they're going to um, talk about the they, they wanted to run against the Trump candidate, thinking that that person would ultimately lose. But, you know, we are seeing in Pennsylvania that that might not be the case. And you see in Arizona. And so I think some of these these races will be really interesting. So you hit on something that I want to go back to. So now fast forward, I mean, Governor Yunkin's doing a fabulous job in Virginia and Winsome Sears and, and God bless you guys, because you're a model, I think for the rest of us, um, especially for those of us, you know, especially me in Massachusetts and those of us in New England, where we feel like we have, we have very little hope. Um, but let's talk about where are you seeing issues such as abortion? coming in here because for this election cycle, and I know you have, you have candidates kind of all over the place. How is that polling over the economy, inflation, parental rights, I'll call mm -hmm. it, you know, in the, you know, parents have no say in their schools, but you know, it kind of goes to everything else. So what are you seeing? Because that's the one thing that I worry about with the Republican Party that we are not messaging well. It is a totally negative campaign against abortion instead of doing anything. It, it's fine. Whatever your beliefs are, I'm not I'm not advocating one or the other because I have my own my own views. But I think that those who would like there to be no abortion at all, there's no solution. There doesn't seem to be any solution there. And so I'm just wondering, are we going to lose suburban educated women on this topic? Or is it still going to be, because I continuously argue as a single mom, I have to put food on the table. I have to keep a roof over my kid's head. I, you know, I'm the one who's doing all the purchasing for them. I know what things cost. And that to me is the number one issue for me. 
but what what do you think? Cause you're, you're the polling person. <laughs> <laughs> so taking it, I'm going to talk about 2021 one more time. Um, when we were hitting on education, there, there came a point kind of in the middle of October last year where those suburban swing women had um, the message had saturated, right? They said, okay, yeah, 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 we know, we know. And, and they started looking a little bit more undecided again. And then they were on our side in the beginning of October, they started getting a little bit more swingy in the middle of October. So we looked at all of the issues sets and said, they really care about the grocery tax. Um, this was even before frankly, all of the news was hitting about inflation. Women especially still see the grocery bill more than anything else. And in the summer, we kind of rolled out this, we'll, we'll get rid of the grocery tax. It's not, it's not that much, right? It's It was, I think, two and a half percent. It would save families two to two to $400 a year. But that little bit of difference kind of said, hey, I'm on your side. I'm going to try to help lower costs however I can. We actually re-released those ads. We had played them at the end of August. And then we, we actually re-released those ads in the middle of October. And that brought those women back. So cost of living is still a major, major issue with them. What I'm seeing in 2022 at this stage of the game, it's a, I'm looking at it at most of my races in four segments. And it's basically education and gender. So you've got less than college-educated men, less than college-educated women, college-educated men, and college-educated women. College-educated women are kind of lost for Republicans. Um, it's you know 60-30 with 10% undecided. With less than college-educated men, it's the inverse. 60-30, 10% undecided in Republicans' favor. The battle lines are generally between college-educated men and less than college-educated women. And I think that's where you're really seeing the tension between abortion and cost of living. You, you might say men don't really need to focus on the abortion part, but what we've been seeing is it's kind of the inverse of what Hillary used to say in 2016 was that women voted how their husbands said to. These college-educated men don't want to sleep on the couch <laughs> for <laughs> voting against what their wives are, are very adamant about and feel very passionately about. And they were not feeling the effects of inflation in the same way that less than college educated voters who tend to have less um, you know, monthly income, they were not feeling inflation in the same way. That I am seeing shift as kind of the stock market's feeling the effects of inflation. Those college educated men are feeling it finally. Less than college educated women are is really kind of that last group where that tension between abortion and cost of living is really battling it out. And that is a very race by race, campaign by campaign battle over those over the segment of voters. So is it as far as, uh, you know, where you live? I mean, rural communities versus urban communities? Where I am more concerned about it is in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania, where abortion is frankly on the ballot. Sometimes literally, sometimes not. <laughs> sometimes it's just definitely the issue of the race. Um, I did polling for the Kansas ballot amendment that went down. So that is a, the Kansas and and then also in the media market around it, because the Kansas City media market dominated that race. But that also affects Missouri. So Missouri is also going to have a little bit more where it's a little bit more um, focused in the bloodstream of the race. That's where I think you're going to see more 
more focus on it and more of that tension within those less than college educated women. So it's not necessarily geographic in the sense of rural versus suburban, how we normally think of it, it's it's state boundaries and, and media markets, because what's the news talking about is more of the, the issue. So I know it's, I guess part of the, what I'm getting to is like living in a more urban and suburban area, like, you know, Massachusetts, Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, New York, right? We're blue states. There's no getting around that. <laughs> And, and so an abortion is not on our ballots at mm-hmm. all. It will never come up. I mean, in Massachusetts, out of 200 members of the legislature, we got like, I don't know, 33 and potentially losing and, and losing our one Republican statewide office holder or two, our governor and lieutenant governor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for us, but it still comes up here yeah. as an issue. So how do you see that Republicans around the country in states where that is not an issue, but the economy is. I mean, the economy is really, is very real here. I mean, you know, just funny enough, when when DeSantis dropped off the 48 migrants onto Vineyard, like Massachusetts is, I think, the wealthiest and the most educated state in the country mm-hmm. per capita. I mean, we've got 7 million people here, right? So like, we are a very wealthy and very educated state. We have, you know, most universities in our state. It's, you know... It is a good place to be. Unfortunately, what happens is that people then become out of touch because mm-hmm. there's a big discrepancy between the people who have money and the people who don't. And so the people who have money forget how they made it and where it came from. And so like you were saying about, you know, the educated male, it's just kind of catching up. It's just kind of creeping up. So they for, so we have the millionaires tax on the ballot. So every that means whether you're a small business owner that makes $1.2 million or you are an individual that makes a million dollars, you are getting slammed with the same tax that's on the ballot. So we don't have abortion, but we do have the economy. But how do you get away from the nasty social issues that, that divide us and refocus that conversation because it's always mean, evil Republicans. You all love Trump and, and, and you all want to take away our rights. And, you know, then it's like, you have to refocus that argument a lot. It's definitely a district by district issue and candidate by candidate, frankly, you know, one of the things that, that worked again for us in Virginia, which was pre Dobbs was the governor's four exceptions for rape, incest, and life of the mother. When voters and specific, I've done a lot of work with independent women. When independent women hear a pro-life candidate, they think that they are never, ever no exceptions. When they hear a pro-choice, they think up to moment of birth and is that's okay and that's what they're going to stand for. They put themselves somewhere in the middle somewhere in that that gray area, depending on the state. Um, and I think Massachusetts is probably on the higher end of this, but it's generally between about 15 and 24 weeks is where they would feel comfortable um, placing limits. The problem is when you're forced between that, that binary choice of a pro-life candidate who they see as never ever and a pro-choice candidate who they see as always forever, they're going to choose between the more permissive extreme. Mm because they're kind of in that middle gray area. So that one of the things is to, if you are not on that extreme and there, 
and in some places it's not the extreme for never no no exceptions telling candidates if they're comfortable get as far away from that that wall as they're comfortable being and expressing that a couple times and changing the conversation frankly but making sure that folks know that you are not not more extreme on the right than they are on the left and you can have that kind of conversation in a lot of different places. Again, it's been a while since I've seen those, those numbers in Massachusetts and Connecticut, but they are probably going to be a little bit more on that leaning toward that left extreme. But again, just making sure that folks know that you aren't at that at one polar end, if you're not, tends to help people see you and not evil Republican. Mm. Yeah, that's because I, I think is a problem, again, goes to my messengers and yep. a good solid message so okay now we're we're getting close we're getting close to to the midterms and do you have any predictions do you see what do you see in your data that is if you could whip out your crystal ball what do you <laughs> i hate doing these um you know i'm not in the field in every senate state so I don't want to make a prediction on that front. Um, I think we, I think the Senate's going to be tight. Um, a lot of October surprises coming out in certain races. So we'll, I think each of those is kind of a race by race situation, but either way, it's going to be pretty tight on the Senate side. Um, I think the house is more reliably going to flip. The minimum number in my head is about 13. Okay. But it's for your minimum, of- that's good. 13 is good. Yeah, I think I mean it's you know it's not a... and yeah between we're just redistricting and a bunch of other factors that's kind of where my my baseline is right now that is also subject to change um, yeah and it could either turn into a bit more of a wave if those col- less than college educated women kind of decide economy is my thing or if they break more towards caring about abortion that's going to be a much tighter kind of margin yeah I mean I'm hoping for for democracy's sake i'm i'm hoping that we can get the republicans can get the house because i think that we need to have some conversations that no one has been willing to have especially when it's one party rule i think mm-hmm. nancy pelosi has seen her you know her last day of <laughs> uh, of being speaker hopefully um and rides off into the sunset We've been running that fire Pelosi yeah, <laughs> banner for a very long time. In 2010, that was the, uh, yeah. we rolled that out and we've been running with it ever since. <laughs> well, I, I think she's going to go be ambassador to Italy with a nice big wine cellar, which, well, you know, might suit her Napa Valley heart well. <laughs> I know, that'd suit my heart too. I'll take I know, <laughs> I'll take that job. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hopeful. I, you know, I see, I unfortunately live in a state where our Republican Party, not not the voters, but the apparatus would like to see issues that are important in Alabama be on our ballot here and candidates that in Massachusetts that run around invoking Trump's name, which Again, you know, it's like, that's great. Like, you know, Trump had great policies and, and they were keeping us safe and, and the, you know, country was doing well. Um, and the policies of this administration are terrible. But, you know, I caution candidates against and, and anyone who talks about politics about looking in the rearview mirror, because what happened in the past happened in the past. We need to really look forward and we need candidates that are forward thinking 
but also going to be, you know, in the model of Yunkin, like, you know, someone who wants to be a problem solver, someone like Charlie Baker, who, you know, really good manager and can work across the aisle and actually take the voters and the citizens of their state in a different direction, which is a positive direction. And, and I feel like a lot of folks that have been running over the past two cycles have been more interested in being the newest um, MSNBC mm-hmm. co-host or, you know, Fox or, you know, Newsmax or, you know, they're, they're, they're more or less try- auditioning than trying to work for the people. And, and, I, you know, I usually say like, leave that to the pundits, right? <laughs> like, we're good at that stuff. If you're running for office, do your job, you're going to get paid by the taxpayers. So, okay. And then last question is, how about women? Where are you seeing the women that are out there running now uh, on the Republican side? How do you see them faring? How do you, you know, just kind of on a, you don't need to talk about any one particular candidate, but I mean, I have a couple in mind, you know, (laughs) but how do you, how do you see the messaging? How do you see that they're doing? Do you think that there's going to be an, an uptick in women that are governors? There are more women running for governors than ever. You know, there's women running for Congress is what little less than has been um, in the past, but what do you see is going to happen for Republican women? And especially, by the way, in states like Arizona, where you have a Republican and Democrat and both females. I feel like we're almost at the stage, not with governors. I'm going to put those aside for a second and get back to it. But I think in the House, we're almost at that point, And it makes me really happy where how well or poorly women are going to do is actually very similar to how well or poorly the men are going to do. Because we've done a very good job. Yes, there are fewer of them but they're in the right places, um, especially Hispanic women. We got them through primaries in seats that are actually winnable. One of the the hard things to watch is when Republicans will put up women candidates in, you know, Democrat plus 12 seats and not in, you know, your more typical year when it's not a wave. And it's, it's almost like there's a glass cliff right? It's, oh, that seat isn't really competitive, but maybe a woman can make it competitive. So we'll push, put a woman or a minority um, candidate in there, which is like, that's, that's impossible. And then even if they pull off the impossible and win, they're going to be gone the next cycle. And then they're constantly in very tough races. What I think we've done a very good job of over the last couple of cycles is getting women into redder seats, safer seats, maneuvering them through primaries that are, Republican primaries are brutal for women. There's a number of factors to that, and that can be a whole nother podcast, but that is the tougher spot. So we've got some incredible women that made it through very competitive primaries or the primary fields have had been cleared for them in seats where if they get in, they're going to be there for a while. They might have a tough race in, in wave years, but you know, they can stay there for a while. And that's what makes me excited on the House front. The statewide office, especially gubernatorial, is always tough. That's kind of the toughest ceiling for women of either party, frankly. That executive role is there's some kind of societal disconnect about getting women in those roles. And I think it's also partly where they come from. A lot of times they're attorneys general. And then that that is also a tough position for a woman to be in because it's very, very crime focused. So then it leans a little bit more toward men. But these governor's races will be very interesting. I'm hoping 
we'll get a few more Republican women, but I love the number of women on women contests. It's kind of like we've actually been able to go toe to toe with the Democrat Party who likes to say that they're so much better than we are at electing women. You know, we're starting to to really rival them. And I think that's some of the work that a lot of people have been doing for a lot of years. Building that bench is finally coming to fruition. Oh, it's so awesome. I love it. For me, it's I, I was in a woman on woman contest in a in my city council race in 2019. And actually in my race, we started out with eight candidates and a couple dropped out, landed up with one man and he is a black man and then four women. Hmm. That's so cool. It was so cool. I mean, yeah. you know, just running in a race where it was like not a typical you know, dominated by white men, you know, and maybe like a spatter of a woman or a person of color. And so, um, and in the final, it was me and another woman, right? And so it's like, that was really kind of cool going out there and being able to show the differences, like, just because we're a woman, we're not all the same. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like exactly. we have very different viewpoints. Well, that's really cool. I, I appreciate your insight. And I'm always asked like, you know, pull out my crystal ball and what do you think? And I've said the same. I, I don't, I think the Senate is really, really difficult at this point. You know, maybe, maybe there's something that comes out and, you know, Dr. Oz could win over Fetterman since Fetterman still, you know, is hiding behind his hoodie, but um, weirder things have happened. So who knows, but I'm hopeful on the house. I'm hopeful to move on and looking at the governor's offices. I mean, Massachusetts is going to be a state that is going to be all women on the statewide or statewide office holders, except hopefully for our auditor seat, we have a Republican male who is amazing and hoping that he ends up winning. But other than him, there's a if he does not win, it's all women in Massachusetts. Unfortunately, they're all Democrats. So um, <laughs> hoping we have we have our one guy <laughs> who's able to be the fiscal watchdog over there. But yeah, I think it's important to get more women running. It's important to get better messaging. You know, I mean, those are kind of my top line, right? Get you know women running. Get better messengers and get a better message that, like you said, I just, I look again, I use Massachusetts and obviously it's election time. And so I'm so Massachusetts focused, but I think we represent a lot of the country, which is we have a very small minority that are registered Republicans. We have middle section of Democrats, but the biggest section are unenrolled voters. They, They don't have a party either way, unless it's a primary. And those folks are exactly what you said on the abortion issue. They're somewhere between 15 and 24-ish weeks. They don't like late-term abortion, but they also don't want it to be completely off the table. And so, you know, it's finding the message that resonates with them. But again, like all of your liberties, all the democracy, all the inflation and economy and how you protect your family. um, I would like to believe that that's what people are thinking of because you know, your family is your mom, your dad, your siblings, your nieces and nephews, your, you know, grandmother, your, you know, whoever it is, it doesn't necessarily have to just be your kids, but it's being able to take care of everyone the way you want to take care of them. Um, All right, Amanda, are there any parting words you want to leave us with as far as the election or important things to look for? 
just be careful and fully believing public polling, especially when you get to states. They there are a lot of technical reasons why they can be off. And if, if I were as off as some of the newspaper polling, I would be out of a job. <laughs> so <laughs> just be cautious. Don't try to unskew the polls, but just kind of I would look at that segment of college educated men or less than college educated women and see how those those folks are looking. And that can give you an idea of how folk, of how the, the race is going. I love that. As someone who usually says the most important poll is the poll on election day. (laughs) Every time there's a big poll that comes out, I'm like, don't believe that one. (laughs) Well, Amanda, thank you so much for being with me today on Political Contessa. Thanks so much for having me. And hopefully you'll come back again in the next election cycle or after this one, and we can do a little Monday morning quarterbacking too. Sounds great. Amanda Iavino is the principal at WPA Intelligence. She works on federal and state campaigns. She was the amazing polling director who led the data efforts for Governor Glenn Youngkin in 2021. And she also, in the place of my heart, is the executive director for the Virginia Conservative Women's Coalition. So Amanda, thank you very much for being with us. And to you, thank you for being here. Stay happy, healthy, and safe. Thanks so much for listening to Political Contessa. For all the ways to listen and to get the inside scoop on what's happening in center-right politics for women like us, head over to politicalcontessa.com. 